beautiful and palatial UltimateSportsTalk.com radio studios. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. I'm Dave Mitchell. Glad to have you along this evening as we sit back and talk about the world of sports for the next 60 minutes, as we do each and every week. You can join us on the social media sites just simply by sending us a tweet at OHBBCoHost, or you can send us an email to dmitch at ultimatesportstalk.com. Well, let's take a look at the headlines very quickly for this week. Last week, the Cleveland Cavaliers were a mess. This week, they appear to be the king of the world. The Cleveland Browns can't get out of the headlines as they fired Joe Banner and Michael Lombardi. The Olympics continue in Sochi, and Bob Costas is having more trouble. Two outstanding guests on tonight's show. In the first half hour, we welcome in Adam Straczynski from the Doc and Jock Sports Talk Show on DetroitSportsPodcast.com to talk about the Detroit Pistons and the Big Ten battle in Michigan. Then in the second half hour, we have as our guest author and world-class tennis player Jennifer Gabu. Now, Jennifer's new book, Division One, is about a freshman girl entering the world of college athletics, and it will be released next Friday. We'll talk to her about the book and women's athletics under Title IX. That coming up in our second half hour. But first, Derek Jeter announced Wednesday that the 2014 Major League Baseball season will be his last. Jeter, 39 years old, said the 2013 season, in which he played just 17 games due to a broken ankle, was a tough one and that some of the things that come easy have become a struggle. Jeter's announcement signals the end of what will be a 19-year career for a player impervious to scandals, even as he carried the highest profile in the game on its most publicized team, the New York Yankees. He enters his final season with 3,316 hits, 10th on the all-time list. He was the 1996 American League Rookie of the Year, a season in which the Yankees won the first of five World Series championships with him as their shortstop. Brian Hoke, the Yankees reporter for MLB.com, says the timing of Jeter's announcement came as a surprise. What Derek made clear in that statement that he released was that this is something he did not come to lightly. It's not like he woke up today and just decided that, uh, 2014 was going to be it. I think that you saw a lot last year with how he struggled with injuries, the four stints on the disabled list, the frustration, the fact that he spent most of the year in Tampa taking ground balls instead of playing with the Yankees. I, I think this was something that was cooking in Derek's mind for a while. Uh, the fact that he's coming up on 40, which is a milestone year. Um, you know, not too many major league shortstops have played consistently past 40. So I think Taking all those things into account, I think Derek realized that he's a lot closer to the end than he is to the beginning. Jeter's final game, barring a Yankee playoff appearance, will come on September 28th at Fenway Park. And get this, tickets online are already being priced at over $1,100 for that game. His final game will be at Yankee Stadium on September 25th. That's against the Baltimore Orioles. His retirement will now mark the end of the Yankees' core four era, a spanning almost two decades in which he, Mariano Rivera, Jorge Posada, and Andy Pettit formed a dominant nucleus for a Yankee franchise always willing to spend money to fill the needs around them. Pettit and Rivera officially retired after last year. Posada did it in 2011. From 2003 through 2007, Don Mattingly served as a coach for the Yankees and was close with Jeter 
After all, those two were the stars of baseball's premier franchise in different eras. Mattingly is happy. Jeter has chosen his time to leave the game. A little surprised that he announced it, uh, but uh, I'm happy for him and excited for him from the standpoint of uh, he's kind of going out on his own terms. Uh, and I think that's always nice for a player to kind of do it the way he wants to do it. And uh, obviously, Cheats uh, pretty much, it always seems like he does the right thing. So um, I'm sure he's thought about it. I think Derek's just a winner in all in all areas, so I'm sure uh, anything he decides to do, uh, he's going to be successful. While Jeter was never the highest paid player, his 10-year, $189 million contract signed in 2000 was quickly dwarfed by others. He connected with Yankees and baseball fans nationwide in a fashion far deeper than most of his well-paid colleagues. He used to give the paparazzi notice that he would be with certain women he was dating at the time, Jessica Biel, for example, Jessica Alba, Maria Carey, they could get a photo in exchange for leaving him alone the rest of the time. And they did. He used to pay certain apartment managers all over New York to say he lived there or spent a lot of time in the area, just so he could live in peace. Jeter will step aside and be eligible for enshrinement into the Hall of Fame initially in the year 2020. And as long as Dan Lebetard isn't voting then, he should become a member of the Hall in his first try. For now, we've got one more season to enjoy Derek Jeter's ability. Well, pitchers and catchers are sporadically reporting to spring training camps in Florida and Arizona. In the meantime, A.J. Burnett has returned to the Pennsylvania area. Burnett signed a one-year contract with the Philadelphia Phillies yesterday for a reported $16 million. Burnett pitched for Pittsburgh last year, and it was believed he would retire, but he had second thoughts. In another signing, the Cleveland Indians have signed outfielder Michael Brantley to a four-year, $25 million contract extension that avoids arbitration and gives him a prominent place in the team's future. Brantley's contract also has a fifth-year club option for the 2018 season. A source told ESPN.com's Jerry Krasnick that the option is worth $11 million. Brantley led the Tribe with a 284 batting average last year. He set career highs with 26 doubles, 10 homers, 73 RBIs, and 66 runs scored. He also stole 17 bases in 21 attempts. And the Los Angeles Dodgers and Arizona Diamondbacks will play Major League Baseball's opening series in Sydney, Australia on March 22nd and 23rd as those teams will face off at the Sydney Cricket Ground Stadium to open the season and be the first teams from the United States to play down under. Let's move into the NBA on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Don't look now, but the Cleveland Cavaliers are going into the NBA All-Star Weekend on a winning streak. Cleveland went for a 93-89 victory over the Detroit Pistons last night and have now won four in a row for the first time since an eight-game streak in March of 2010, not long before LeBron James departed for Miami. During that span, every other team in the league has had at least one four-game winning streak. So forget Chris Grant being fired. The key to this winning streak was getting rid of NBA Commissioner David Stern. Tristan Thompson scored 14 of his 25 points in the fourth quarter last night for Cleveland, overpowering Detroit's vaunted front line 
as the Cavs rallied from a 10-point deficit in the final quarter. The Pistons, with that loss, had their three-game winning streak snapped. Andre Drummond of the Pistons had 16 points and 17 rebounds, but he didn't do much in the fourth quarter as Thompson took control inside. This was the first time in eight meetings that the Cavaliers have beaten the Pistons, and this was the second game the Pistons have played under interim coach John Lawyer after Maurice Cheeks was fired on Sunday, and this was a repeat of the problems the Pistons have had all season at home. Detroit has lost six games at the Palace when leading after three quarters. Meanwhile, the NBA trade deadline is coming up. It's next Thursday at 3 p.m. That's the deadline. And there's been rampant speculation in recent weeks when it comes to the Cleveland Cavaliers and what they plan on doing at the deadline. So far, Deion Waiters is safe. New GM David Griffin has reportedly told Waiters He's absolutely not going to be traded and that he should just go out and have some fun on the court. With so much mediocrity in the Eastern Conference this season, hardly anyone is really out of the playoff chase. Detroit trails Charlotte by a half game for that eighth and final postseason spot. Cleveland is three back of the Bobcats. So these two teams, only a mile apart, have so much in common and so much to play for because Detroit isn't satisfied with their season either. Well, a lot going on in the NBA over the last couple of weeks, not only in Cleveland, but also north of us in Detroit, where the Pistons fired Mo Cheeks as their head coach earlier this week and brought in former University of Akron assistant coach John Lawyer to take over the club. And joining us now from the city of Detroit, Adam Trzinski from the Doc and Jock Sports Talk Show in Detroit on Detroit Sports Podcast. Dot com. Adam, thanks for joining us tonight. How are you? Not so bad. How are you doing? Doing just great. Hey, uh, the Pistons 22-30 and 30 after the loss last night to the Cavs, and John Lawyer in only his second game as head coach after the Pistons have fired Mo Cheeks. So why was Mo Cheeks the right man for Joe Dumars in June and not in February? This firing, I don't believe, was anything to do with Joe Dumars. This firing, I believe, was all the owner, Tom Gores. I don't think Gores actually wanted Mo Cheeks. I think Mo Cheeks was, he was just a guy. And the way the team has struggled, he he just couldn't handle it anymore. And the Pistons were starting to kind of pick up a little bit of steam. They put two games together. I don't think the Pistons, I think the Pistons looked forward and they couldn't fire a coach who had possibly won three games when they beat San Antonio, possibly beat Cleveland, and then headed into the into the All-Star break. How are you going to fire a coach at the All-Star break after he's won four straight games? So I think it was one of those things. It was it was now or never. They fired Cheeks, got rid of him. They brought in John Lawyer. I think John Lawyer is he's just temporary. He's basically a Band-Aid on a bullet wound. Last night we sat there and we talked to somebody who has a little bit more insider information and his speculation. So I have this from a source who got this from a source. So take it for what it's worth. But speculation around the Pistons is they're going to make a really hard push at getting Tom Izzo from Michigan State. Um, Tom Gores is a Michigan State alum. He really likes Michigan guys. John or Tom Izzo is is a Michigan guy. Going to go hard. Going to go get him. Tom Izzo wants player control. So Joe Dumars' contract will be over at the end of this year. So you blow everybody out, you bring a brand-new regime in, and that's what the speculation is right now. 
while, of course, the Cavaliers tried to get Izzo three or four years ago, and Izzo decided that he wanted to stay in college. Why do the Pistons think that they're going to be able to do something that that the Cavs couldn't just because of the, the state of Michigan? It, you know what? That that I think is the only reason why. Because and tons of tons of teams have come after Izzo, and tons of teams have thrown money and everything else that Izzo has asked for at him, and he always turns them down. He's a king in in East Lansing. He can do no wrong there, and he's basically built his kingdom and his fiefdom. He just sits atop it as with his scepter and his crown. So why would he ever want to leave that and then go to the NBA? So I, I don't know if it's going to happen, but that is the inside information that we got. That's what's being discussed, and that's what's kind of being thrown around. What other coaches are the Pistons looking at? Um, at this point, they've got John Lawyer, and depending on kind of how this season goes, um, we'll kind of see what happens. You know what? It, it's hard to speculate on coaches because I don't think Joe Dumars is going to get another year. I think this was kind of this was kind of it. I think Tom Gores gave Joe Dumars as much rope as he could to hang himself. He's now hung himself, and I think now it's going to be we're going to get a new GM in, and when you get a new GM, that GM is going to want control and is going to want to put his own coach in. So depending on who the new GM is, I think that's when you can start to speculate on who the new coach will be. Well, has the problem been Dumars, Adam, or has it been Mo Cheeks and the other coaches? Because this will be the, the sixth coach that Dumars, if he's allowed to hire one, the sixth coach that he would hire in the last six years. I think a lot of it is a lot of it's Dumars because if you look at the pieces that he's put around on this team, it stuff just makes you kind of sit back and scratch your head. Like, why would you go out and why would you sign Josh Smith to a ridiculous contract when you basically have a budding? We won't say su- superstar, but talk around the league is he's a budding star with Greg Monroe. Why would you go sign somebody else who plays his position and then bring in Josh Smith, who can be a very stubborn head case himself and say, hey, you know what? You can't play the four. We need you to play the three. So now you move him out of position, and he's been known for taking horrible long-range shots. So now you put him in a spot where that's all he's going to do. So I think personnel decisions that Joe Dumars has made has kind of led to this, and that's the reason why we are where we're at now as Piston fans and as a Piston organization. How has Brandon Jennings fit in with this club, Adam? If you look at Brandon Jennings and if he is pass first on day A, B, and C, Pistons tend to win. If he shoot first on days D, E, and F, they tend to lose. So the way the team kind of works is it depends on what kind of mode Brandon Jennings is in. He is a volume shooter, so he likes to put the ball up a lot. If he's passing the ball and he's trading for other players, this team tends to win, and his stats kind of bear it out. If he, if you, if you go back and you look over the last 50 games, 51, 52 games, and if you look at his assist ratio, if he leads the team in assists, they tend to win those games nine out of ten times. If he doesn't, they lose. So if he's a pass first guy, they're going to win. If he's going to just sit there and he's going to be a chucker and he's going to throw the ball up, they're going to lose. That sounds like the same syndrome that the Cavaliers have right now with Kyrie Irving. If he leads the team in assists, they win. If he leads the team in scoring, nine times out of ten, they lose. What scenario, Adam, can you see the Pistons keeping John Lawyer as coach? Any scenario at all? I think if he if, if he goes on a run, he if he wins and this team gets into the playoffs and they make a little bit of noise in the playoffs, you have to remember this team has basically been dreadful for the last five years. John Lawyer with his one and one record, he's at five hundred. He's been the highest he has the highest win percentage 
of any coach in the last five or six years. So if he wins, he gets them into the playoffs, they make a little bit of noise in the playoffs, not necessarily saying that they have to get out of the first round, but they make a little bit of noise. They win one or two games against one of the two top best teams, or maybe they even push and they get into like a five, four or five spot and they get into the playoffs, I think then he has a good chance to keep his job. Because how are you going to fire a coach who actually got you to the playoffs, something that hasn't happened in the last couple of years? Are the Pistons, like the Cavaliers, looking for anything come the trade deadline in a couple of weeks? I think so. I think at this point they're going to have to move Greg Monroe because you can't trade Josh Smith. So they're going to probably have to trade Greg Monroe because it's it's proven that it's not going to work when you have those three big men down low. So you're going to try to move Greg Monroe get something back for him. I know there was a press release that was leaked out out here in the Metro Detroit area, basically stating that the Pistons have no problem making Greg Monroe a max player. That being said, I don't know why they would even say that or entertain that thought because now you just basically cut off any trade options. But I think you're going to have to trade him. Look for him to be traded come trade deadline. He's the one piece that they have who's worth anything. And if they move him, you can put Josh Smith where Josh Smith belongs, Maybe they get a two-guard who can put the ball in the basket. Maybe they can go get a three who can sit there and play more than 22 minutes a game. So we'll see. Well, it sounds that I know there has been a couple of rumors down here that the Cavaliers were interested in Greg Monroe. Are you hearing anything in Detroit about that? Not about the Cavaliers. Um, that's interesting that you bring that up. That's something that uh, I think I'm going to have to look into for, for our show. But uh, I think he might fit nicely down there for you guys. I don't know. How do you how do you feel about Greg Monroe? Do you guys I, I like, like Greg Monroe? Are you high on him? I, I like Greg Monroe. I think he's got a he's got a lot of upside to him. The the idea is is that of course the Cavaliers now they've won four straight and when you look at this ball club, they seem to have a lot of talent, but they haven't been able to put it all together until Chris Grant got fired. And when Chris Grant got fired it seemed to be an eye opener for some of these young kids. That being said, they've still got a large vacuum at the small forward spot because Luau Deng has not been what they thought he was going to be. Now, their hope, of course, is to be able to uh, take a Luau Deng and maybe get something like a Greg Monroe back, even though Deng is in the final year of his contract. The Cavaliers are still hoping if they put on a strong second-half performance, the thought is that maybe LeBron James would be willing to come back to Cleveland. Now, I do know there's a lot of rumors out there, Adam, that LeBron's wife, would like LeBron to come back to the Cleveland area because she would like their kids to go to Akron, St. Vincent, St. Mary's. So that rumor, even though ESPN is discounting it, from what I've heard around here, has a lot of legs. And that that trade scenario that you just brought up, depending on how the contracts work out, that might actually work because both teams, you'll be getting basically a premier or possibly a premier a power forward, we'd be getting a, a shooting guard, and the expiring contract always looks nice in basketball. So that trade might actually possibly work out, it's something that I think both of us will have to keep an eye on going into the future here with the trade deadline approaching. A- absolutely. Adam Straczynski, our guest here tonight on Ultimate Sports Talk from the Doc and Jock Sports Talk Show in Detroit on Detroit Sports Podcast. So you mentioned, Adam, the name... Tom Izzo. Now, Michigan State's got a game tonight. It seems like the Big Ten Championship in basketball is going to go through the state of Michigan, either with the Wolverines or the Spartans. Yeah, I think this game coming up between Michigan and Michigan State, I think that's going to be for all the marbles. 
If Michigan's a jump shooting team, so as long as they don't get cold at the wrong time, they've got a great chance to win this thing outright. Otherwise, the way Michigan State is constructed, I think top to bottom, they are probably the best team in the Big Ten. They've got so much depth, and they're so powerful, and they have no problem working the ball inside than kicking it back out. They've got shooters. They've got big men down low who have no problem rebounding. So I think you're right. It's going to come down to one of these two teams. And for Michigan, as long as they don't get cold, I think they're the team to beat right now. That being said, Adam, who's the best coach in Michigan right now? Is it Beeline or Izzo? Oh, I, I'm a Michigan guy, but <laughs> you have to worship with Vita Izzo. You look at everything he's done. His, his track record speaks for itself. When you have NBA teams like we just spoke about, basically throwing just barrels of money at you and giving you whatever you want, I think you're a pretty darn good coach. Absolutely. Hey, let's switch gears here and move into the NFL real quick. There's a lot of things going on uh, about Ndamukong Sue up in Detroit. Uh, will the Lions franchise him? Are they going to ask him to take a pay cut? What are they going to do with Sue right now? I don't know what they're going to do with Sue, but I'll tell you what I would do with Sue. And this, you have to understand, coming from a Lions fan, the Lions never do what you want them to do. They always do something, and they do it in the worst fashion possible. So what the Lions should do is probably release Sue because his salary cap number is so large. Let him play out the rest of this season. Don't look to resign him. Don't look to extend him because all you're doing is you're then moving this chunk of change, which at this point his cap number is $22.4 million which is ridiculous for a defensive tackle. Nobody on the D-line should ever make that much money or be considered worth that much money against the, the salary cap. All you're going to do is you're going to take that money and you're going to move it down the road two or three years. So in two or three years, you got to sit there and you got to tackle the same problem. At the same time, going into next year, uh, Matthew Stafford and Calvin Johnson's cap numbers both skyrocket. So you're going to be basically in the same boat again, just taking on water. At this point, um, Nick Burleson has just been released by the Lions as they try to clear up cap space. Um, I think you might see a restructuring with Sue. I don't think you can ask that man to take a pay cut. I think you would agree with me. He is probably the number one, number two defensive tackle in the game of football right now. With all of his antics and everything aside, I think he's probably the best player at that position. You can even move him outside if you want to. I don't think he's got the speed to be outside, but he causes enough problems and disrupts enough of the passing game and the run game that even if you move him outside, he's still a worthy component a worthy component on that defensive line at all times. So I think though what they might end up doing is they might end up working something out just to sit there and lessen that cap hit because like I said, twenty two point four million dollars is a lot of money for, for one player, especially on your def- on your interior defense defensive line. So how do Lions fans feel about Jim Caldwell becoming coach? Uh, underwhelmed? One word, underwhelmed. We we thought that was just it, we all thought it was botched from the get go. So it was he, he was basically collateral damage. That's what you got. I think they really wanted Wiz and Hunt. Wiz and Hunt kind of looked at the looked at the cap numbers and said, "Yeah, we're not going to be able to do that." So he ended up going to uh, to Tennessee, where they've got a little bit more favorable uh, salary cap, and we ended up with Jim Caldwell. And apparently Jim Caldwell won a lot of people over with his press conference. Press conferences don't win games. The only thing that's going to win people over here with me anyways is W's. So the more W's he goes out and get, the better off they'll be. So we'll see. 
was there any any truth that you heard to the rumor that Jim Trestle was even considered for the offensive coordinator's position there? Yes, surprisingly, yes. Um, that was actually floated around here for probably about two weeks, maybe three weeks. And like I said, I'm a Michigan guy, so you know I hate the Buckeyes. So it put me in an awkward position because you've seen all the good things that he did in Ohio at Ohio State. So kind of like, well, do we want this guy? Do we not want this guy? Will it help our professional team win? You know you hate him because he's a Buckeye. But, yeah, that was – I think there was a lot of truth there. And I think that was – there was a definite possibility. They ended up going out and getting Lombardi. He works with the – you know, he's worked with Drew Brees, and he's bringing that Saints playbook. And I think that that was the one thing that he brought to the table that I think made Caldwell say, yeah, we'll go with this guy instead of instead of the other guy, you know. Well, I'm sorry to tell you this, Adam, but the best line I heard about Jim Trussell going to the Detroit Lions was he never lost in Michigan. So <laughs> that, that was that the best line that, that I heard. <laughs> My heart aches right now. Stop bringing- <laughs> hey, one, one final topic. I'm going to have, uh, have you back on later on in the month of March to talk Tiger baseball. But yesterday, Derek Jeter from the state of Michigan, by the way, uh, decided to retire. Your thoughts on, on Derek Jeter and his decision to make this his last year? I think I have nothing but res- I hate the Yankees. Let's start there. I hate the Yankees. I, oh, the Yankees do nothing but bother me. I can't stand them. Derek Jeter, on the other hand, he's one of those guys where you can hate the evil empire and you're still, you know, like, you know what? I really like that guy. He's a class act. I like Derek Jeter. I would want Derek Jeter on, on the Tigers if I could have Derek Jeter on the Tigers. Derek Jeter has been nothing but a class act his whole career. I like him. I wish him nothing but the best. Again, you said he's a, he's a Michigan guy. He's from Kalamazoo. So I love Derek Jeter. I can't say anything bad about Derek Jeter. And I think this being his, his way out, I think this will be, this will be great. I think this year you'll see, I think every stadium he goes to, it'll be similar to the, to the Mariano Rivera where he goes and everybody basically applauds him in his final game in that stadium and he deserves it. Well, the only thing I could say, Adam, as we close down this interview, and I thank you for your time, the best thing that has come out of Michigan lately is Kate Upton. So, <laughs> hey, her and Berlander, they're back on it. So, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully he wins another twenty games for us, and maybe we'll win a maybe we'll win a World Series. <laughs> Adam Trzinski, thanks for joining us here tonight on Ultimate Sports Talk. Really been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I look forward to talking to you again in March. Saturday night, the sports world was shocked, outraged, and disappointed when Oklahoma State All-American Marcus Smart shoved a fan during the Cowboys' loss at Texas Tech. On Tuesday, Smart was suspended for the Cowboys' next three games. The first came last night as his punishment. Smart had been sprawled on the edge of the stands after an unsuccessful attempt to block a late-game dunk and was given a technical foul but not ejected after he abruptly shoved a Texas Tech fan named Jeff Orr in the final moments of the 65-61 loss in Lubbock. Smart spoke on Tuesday after the suspension was announced, but did not take any questions after making a brief statement. I let my emotions get the best of me. You know, uh, just can't let that 
happen again is something I have to learn from, a lesson I have to learn from. The consequences that are coming with it, you know, I'm taking full responsibility. Uh, no fingers are pointing. This is all upon me. And, uh, you know, I just want to say truly apologize to those uh, that are very important to me. I feel like I let my teammates down. These guys mean a lot to me. And uh, not to be able to be out there with them is, is a big uh, – it hits me in my heart. You know, I have a lot of people that look up to me, a lot of little kids. So, you know, once again, like I said, I truly apologize. Smart is averaging 17.5 points and 5.7 rebounds this year. Last year, he was considered by many to be a top-five NBA pick, but he opted to return to college to improve his game. Oklahoma State, now 16-7, and was a preseason top-ten team. Fox Sports NBA insider Bill Ryder says this incident will not hurt Smith's draft status come June. I called people around the league today, and they were unified in saying this is not going to matter one bit. His talent will matter. Now, if the pressure of this moment adds to some of the other pressure we've seen, kicking chairs, his jump shot has gone downhill a little bit, and the concerns of his game continue, and maybe he doesn't play as well, that's going to be an issue. One GM told me, look, the problem with him isn't that he's falling because of this, it's falling that he's not playing good basketball. I mean, he's still a lottery pick, but three, four weeks ago, he was still a top five pick with most people. Now the most generous is five to ten, and if he doesn't get it together, I've heard he could fall even further. Exactly what Orr said to provoke Smart remains unclear. Smart said he was called a racial slur, while Orr says he called Smart a piece of crap. I don't care what Orr called Smart. What he did was absolutely atrocious. I don't care if he called him a piece of crap or a great guy. There was no reason for anybody that close to the floor to be allowed to stay in that game after doing something like that. There had to be a reason that Smart came up the way that he did and shoved Orr in the chest. But why was he allowed to stay in the game? In this day and age of referees having rabbit ears, they should have heard exactly what Orr said to Smart because there was a referee right there. Why was Orr allowed to stay there? Why is he allowed to come back to watch Texas Tech games? Is he a big booster of Texas Tech? If Bobby Knight was still the coach, even if Pat Knight was still the coach at Texas Tech, what do you think they would uh, have done? I would almost guarantee that Bobby Knight would have walked over there and escorted Jeff Orr out of the arena himself. But why didn't the referees throw anybody out? They said that they couldn't, which that's not true. The referees have the authority to throw anybody out, even though they are told, leave the crowd alone. Is it any wonder why Texas Tech has fallen upon hard times since the Knights left that school? Well, the AP Top 25 is out in Syracuse, won last night by the skin of their teeth over Pittsburgh on a last-second three-point shot. They stayed unbeaten at 24-0, and they'll remain atop the college basketball world. Arizona is number two, Florida three, Wichita State number four. San Diego State will drop after they fell to Wyoming on Tuesday night. And here's a look at some of the big games. In college basketball this weekend, number one Syracuse will entertain North Carolina State. This is on Saturday. Florida will be at Kentucky, Air Force at San Diego State, TCU at Kansas, Maryland at Duke, Houston at Cincinnati, and Texas Tech will be at number 11, Iowa. And on Sunday games, Wichita State will be at Evansville, Villanova at Creighton. That's a big game there. Nebraska at Michigan State, Rutgers at Louisville, and Wisconsin will be playing at number 15, Michigan.
Well, it's time now for our good, the bad, and the ugly segment. Here's the good. Michael Jordan is now a new father. His wife, Yvette, has given birth to the couple's identical twin daughters, Jordan's spokeswoman, Steve Portney, told the Associated Press. Portney told the press that on Tuesday night, Yvette Jordan, 35, gave birth to Victoria and Isabel on Sunday in West Palm Beach, Florida. Of course, Jordan is 51, and he married the former model on April 27th of last year in Palm Beach. And the reception was held at a private golf club in Jupiter designed by Jack Nicklaus. Congratulations to Michael Jordan. Well, the bad is that it wasn't long ago that 8th grader Rashad Williams of Charlotte, North Carolina, found out that he'd be attending West Mecklenburg High in the fall, which is a typical revelation in the life of a middle schooler. But after his football highlight video, which was professionally produced from his best plays in the 14 and under team, found its way to the next level, Williams soon discovered that the Florida State Seminoles are interested in him. Rashad's father, Hilton Williams, was simply stunned when Brenson Bruckner, a former Carolina Panther who played for Sal Sinceri, who is now Florida State's defensive ends coach, contacted the Williams family to say that Sinceri and Florida State were impressed by Rashad's footwork. The 13-year-old Williams will get a chance to visit the national champs on campus when Florida State's junior day takes place on March 1st. There he'll get a chance to meet the players and talk with Jameis Winston about the Seminole experience. Then he returns to Charlotte to finish middle school. Now this is bad because the 13-year-old will now have the pressure of collegiate coaches recruiting him. He'll no longer be a kid playing a sport. He's now a piece of meat. With one coach will come another and another and another. Let Williams just be a kid and enjoy at least his first couple years in high school before the onslaught begins. And for the third straight day, Matt Lahr will helm NBC's primetime's Sochi Olympics coverage as Bob Costas is our ugly tonight. He's continuing to recover from the pink eye infection. Now, Matt Lauer says that it is an honor to take over for Bob Costas, but he will be glad when Costas returns, and so will we. Jimmy Haslam made a bombshell announcement Tuesday that thrilled all of Cleveland and raised eyebrows again around the NFL world. Haslam fired Joe Banner and general manager Michael Lombardi after their first full seasons on the job. Haslam became dubious about Banner's football acumen and during the coaching search process following the firing of rookie head coach Rob Chudzinski saw what a potential roadblock to success Banner would be. Add in Banner's ego and confrontational style that rubbed many around the NBA the wrong way, and you've got a good read on why Haslam stunned the NFL with his late morning announcement on Tuesday. Joe and I, after lots of conversation, mutually agreed that it was best for the organization if we streamlined things where accountability, uh, reporting lines were much clearer, and Accordingly, effective today, we've announced that 
Alex Shiner, as I mentioned earlier, will run our business side and will remain as president. Uh, Mike Patton will obviously be the head coach, and Ray Farmer will be our GM. We will not have a CEO, and those three people will report directly to me. I believe we have positioned this organization to become a winning football team, uh, something that does not happen on a consistent basis around here in a long time. Get these numbers. Under Haslam, who came in preaching patience and team-building approach, the Browns have fired two coaches, two general managers, a CEO, a president. They fired Chudzinski when he got off the team bus from Pittsburgh after the last game of the season. And they've started four quarterbacks and seemed prepared to move heaven and earth to draft a new quarterback savior in the first round of the May 8th draft. Now, Haslam knows he'll be ridiculed, deservedly so, for looking like George Steinbrenner in his prime for the way he's whacked coaches and front office staff seemingly willy-nilly since he took over as owner. I will accept um, comments and criticism about change, uh, and I'll accept responsibility for uh, some of the changes that have been made. There is no primer for being an NFL owner. It is a learn-on-the-go, if you will. I will tell you, I underestimated this. It's a learning curve to be an NFL owner, and if you want to look at me as a work in progress, that's fair to say to do. I will tell you this. These are the last of the major changes we're going to make in the organization, but we'll continue to, if I could use the word, tinker with the organization to continue to find ways to improve it and make it better. I just want to know his definition of tinker. But why? Why now? Why after a coach has been hired. Mary Kay Cabot of the Cleveland Plain Dealer reported today that former CEO Joe Banner and Lombardi often clashed, most notably during the Browns' recent head coaching search. Banner wanted Lombardi gone, and yet Haslam wanted Banner gone. The discord over candidates to be brought in and interviewed reached ahead when the team was entering the final phase with Mike Patton. Haslam realized that Banner wanted to fire Lombardi, who already wasn't that popular in Cleveland, and that many head coaching candidates who interviewed for the Browns job didn't want to work with Banner. So, both are gone. And then there is the entire Josh McDaniels nonsense. According to reports, Lombardi had an agreement with McDaniels to become the Browns head coach before they ever fired Chudzinski. Then they went through the interview process, brought McDaniels to Cleveland, and then went to New England to see him, and that is when McDaniels, in the interview with Banner and Lombardi, found out that Banner had absolutely no intention of giving up the decision-making criteria for the football team. And that McDaniels would have no say over who the Browns drafted. That was it for McDaniels, and he gave up the idea of taking the job. Then there's Ken Wisenhunt, who's been interviewed the past two Januaries, first after he was fired as Arizona's head coach, and then last month when he was employed as San Diego's offensive coordinator. He finally took the Tennessee job. When Wisenhunt entered the room this year for the interview, he was one of the hottest commodities on the market. Wisenhunt said to Banner, why didn't you hire me last year? Banner said he didn't think the staff he was putting together at the time was a championship coaching staff. Wisenhunt, according to an NFL source, was peeved that a man who had never coached and never been involved in football, mainly on the business side, would sit in judgment of his potential coaches. And he told Banner that and then left the room. Ironically, 
It's Lombardi that's gotten a new job. His old friend Bill Belichick hired him today to be on the Patriots' front office staff. I wonder how long it's going to take Joe Banner to get a new job. Now the GM is Ray Farmer, who wasn't a part of the four-man team interviewing potential head coaches. Farmer also is the head of football operations, and we'll have to sit back and see how well he and new coach Mike Pettin get along. In other news in the NFL, prospect Michael Sam of Missouri came out publicly as gay Sunday and immediately was largely applauded for his honesty and bravery by everyone from NFL coaches, players, and executives to the Obamas. So now, how is the NFL going to accept the news? Well, Sam is poised to become a trailblazer in the macho world that will scrutinize his every action and turn his private life into a very public debate. But make no mistake right now. He is not Jackie Robinson. He is not Bill Russell. Sam is someone who made his private life public in order to control the story and quite possibly ensure his draft status doesn't plummet. Sam had begun telling small groups of his Missouri teammates that he was gay two years earlier. In August, he told the whole group, along with the coaching staff, and most of them already knew. Mizzou's head coach, Gary Pinkle, explained earlier this week how the news with the team was received. The next morning, you know, I, I got together with the captains and asked the team how the team's doing. And they said, fine, and I, I want to see Michael, obviously. And uh, Michael came in to see me, and uh, I said to Michael, I said, uh, I'm really proud of you. I love you. And I hugged him. And then we sat down and then we kind of talked about what he wanted to do. And what do you want to do? You want to, you want to, you want to announce this? And we kind of discussed scenarios with him. Ultimately, without question, it's your decision. You think about it tonight and let us know tomorrow. So he came in the next, the, the next morning, as I recall, and he said, I, Coach, I don't, want to be, I don't want a distraction here. I want to focus on winning football games. And I want the team to have their best year and for he to, me to have my best year. And uh, I said, you sure you want to do that? He says, yeah. And so uh, we honored that. And then I said, whenever you decide to do it, whenever it is, you just let me know. And, uh, you know, I, we have 100% support. I think overall it was remarkably positive. I thought they, I thought they embraced him. Uh, but I also am not naive enough to think that you've got 127 players. But that's okay. It's about being respectful to people. And if you're part of our family, you're part of our football program, part of our team, we are going to be respectful of the differences amongst us and, 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 and embrace and, uh, and support each other. That's what we do here at Missouri. It sounds like Sam had an easier time and a more public announcement to the team than to his own father. Michael Sam Sr. was celebrating his birthday at a Denny's near his home outside Dallas when he got a text message from his son telling him he's gay. Now, I would hope that my sons could have told me something like that in person. That's just respecting your elders. Sam wants respect and expects others to treat him with respect Yet he treated his own father with the lack of it. And by the way, why does this need to be announced? You don't see heterosexual people announcing that they're heterosexual. I don't understand why this even needed to be announced. Most NFL draft projections see Sam as a middle-round draft pick, with some saying he could go as high as the third round with a possible position switch to outside linebacker. Sam is ranked 12th among outside pass rushers in the draft by ESPN Scouts Incorporated. Now, many see this admission as a deflection and control of the real story by Sam. Now, 
I'm not sure that's the real reason. My take on this was totally opposite of the mainstream media, which happens a lot of the times. I'm thinking this could have been an insurance policy by Sam to make sure he's drafted. Why? Because if he isn't drafted now, he has a discrimination suit against the NFL. And what if he's not good enough? What if he's going to be cut? What if the Turk comes to visit him? The questions will always be there about was he cut because of talent or was he cut because he's gay. Well, our next guest tonight, listen to these accomplishments by Jennifer Gabu. Number one NCAA Division I singles tennis player in the nation in 2005. In 2003, number two NCAA Division I doubles player in the nation. The 2003 NCAA Division I team champion. NCAA tournament singles and doubles semifinalist. A four-time All-American. A four-time academic All-American. A three-time ITA scholar athlete. A first-team ESPN the Magazine academic All-American. A finalist for the 2005 Honda Award for Tennis. A first-team Arthur Ashe Scholar, an SEC Tournament MVP. Then after her playing career, she became associate head coach at Wichita State University for two years and then was head coach at Division I Florida Gulf Coast University from 2008 through 2013. And now you can add author to these accomplishments. Division One is an insider's look at the shadows behind the bright lights of current major NCAA Division I collegiate athletics, as experienced by an 18-year-old freshie student-athlete, Allie Lancaster. And now our guest on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show, we want to welcome to our microphones, Jennifer Gabu. Jennifer, you're the author. Thanks for joining us tonight. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. Very excited. It's our pleasure. You know, I, as I said to you beforehand, I haven't had an opportunity to read the book, but I'm going to as soon as it comes out next February 21st. That's next Friday. Tell me, what made you write this book? What was your inspiration? You know, I've been in, I've been involved in athletics since I was three years old. My father played at NBA, and my mother had a front seat to all of the uh, backstories and all of the uh, happenings behind the scenes and. I just kind of, like when I was a little girl, I'd walk down the aisle and I'd always try to find the Barbie that looks like myself. I'm interracial, mixed ethnicities. I never found it. And as an adult, I'm walking down the book aisle and I'm looking around and I'm not seeing that authentic student-athlete story uh, that looks like myself. So I drew from my experience, my father's and everyone in my in my family and decided, you know what, let's create a narrative from beginning to end of what a freshman year can be like at a major D1 school. Do you feel that you were able to put that on paper? Did it come out the way you wanted it to? Yes, I'm so excited. It actually, uh, I wrote the book uh, in a matter of months, actually. I've been, I've been thinking about it for about 10 years, and so it came out, and it, it really flowed um, from beginning to end, and I'm excited about it. I mean, it definitely has everything, everything in it, that's for sure. Well, I've got a friend that has authored a couple of books, and he has always told me that the ideas for novels come from actual real-life experiences put into fiction. Is that basically right. what this is about? Absolutely. I mean, for myself, I wanted to 
create a story uh, that was that was real, as close to reality as it could be. The novel is a fiction, but it's kind of like one of those uh, situations where you're you're often telling your your personal stories to young student athletes in high school or, or parents, and I always noticed that they had the I call it the campfire effect. They had that look on their face like they were being told kind of a scary story around like a campfire, and I thought. Oh my goodness, you know, wouldn't it be neat if somebody could um, read this as partly as entertainment, but also to see, you know, this is kind of what I'm getting myself into when I go to a major school. Well, tell us a little bit about what this girl does get herself into in her freshman year. Well, um, she comes from a very, a very conventional background, traditional home, and uh, as on the back cover it mentioned, she has very strict virginal convictions, so it's a little bit outside of the norm, but uh, she goes to this big school, and I mean, from the first scene, from the first moment, she's her eyes are, are open to a world that she never even knew existed, where you've got all kind of things going on, whether that's uh, you know, sexual activity, whether that's diseases or eating disorders, even coaches. I mean, there's a line in the book that says, any and everything is possible in a world where football is king, winning is supreme, and all about the glory of sports. So she's really learning what, what all of that means. Football players are are under constant pressure, as are the basketball players. But you don't think so much about the Title IX sports that are going on in universities. You know, I'd say what's so fascinating about being in a non-revenue sport is you feel the effects of of all of it, uh, even though you're not generating the funds. So, for example, uh, you'll, you're, it was nothing when I was in school to see a young freshman football player come in with two two babies by two different mothers, and that was something that was acceptable. And so that's unique in that situation, but if you turn around and you have a same female freshman athlete that comes in and then she gets pregnant, her situation can be um, a lot different, and her scholarship and then uh, her decision can be a lot different than that, that young man who is coming in at a different set of rules. So I was fortunate when I went to school to have an awesome – opportunity with Title IX. We even had our own planes, which was amazing for a tennis team. So you definitely feel a lot of that, but then you also think to yourself, you know, it would be different for me if I could still have children and still play at the same time and keep my scholarship <laughs> as a woman. So you definitely um, you definitely feel the effects of, of what sometimes uh, can be a, a different situation. Well, you were in tennis, you coached tennis, you played, you were an All-American at the University of Florida, then you turned to coaching. But, you know, you hear all the horror stories, Jennifer, of kids in tennis academies, tennis schools, just, just younger kids. Give us kind of a comparison between what happens with kids when they're first getting into the tennis world and when they get into their first year of college. I'll tell you, tennis and golf are very unique sports. They're the only sports where money exchanges hands from parents to coaches. So you've got a sport like basketball. These these young people are trying to please the coach and impress the coach so that they can make the squad. And in tennis, uh, they're usually a paid individual. So I think that's why I have a lot of different activities that, that occur there. And then moving in from with golf and tennis into an NCAA team sport can be a, a shock as well because you're coming from an individual mindset that you've had since you were three and four years old, training maybe eight hours a day at, at times, not even going to school, to now having a teammate. So that provides for some interesting reading as well uh, in regards to assimilating into that new group. 
Well, tell us a little bit about how your playing days affected how you handled freshmen and sophomores like this girl in your book when you became a coach. You know, um, I was I really had a fantastic experience at University of Florida. We won a national championship my freshman year, and getting into coaching, I, I coached at Florida Gulf Coast University, which is a much smaller smaller institution. There's no football, so it was really a, a different experience um, coaching a, a student athlete at a different level. But it was also enjoyable, and for myself, I was able to just share the message of, you know, you. Re- protect your reputation. That's the main thing you want to do. You only really have one chance to make that first impression. So I really did enjoy being able to to share that with with the young women. Do you feel people turning a blind eye to the non-revenue sports? You know, it's really interesting. In in the book, it's not a a major plot point, but there's there's just kind of a sideline item that says an assistant coach on a a women's team uh, left – the, her her husband for a freshman player and I tell you it's been a fortunate time in sports to be able to see uh, student athletes come out and do different things but you very rarely see uh, a football coach leaving um, his wife for a, a freshman athlete so I I do think that it can be a very um, different situation for young women in school. Well, when you look at this book, Allie Lancaster, how did you first of all? come up with this character, and what type of twists and turns happens to this girl throughout the book? Well, and in, in this is actually a, some true verbiage from, from real life in, in big schools, and I was shocked when I saw on Facebook that, that this uh, kind of a nickname still happens. Freshie is a, an endearing term that, that, uh, that re- returners call freshmen student-athletes. And then there's also normies, which are people that, that don't participate in collegiate athletics, and those are kind of your general student population. So in, in essence, the book is written in third person, and it's a narrative of how, even though she's an elite athlete, she, she witnesses all of this behavior and all of these decisions kind of like through the eyes of a normie. And so it, it can be um, pretty shocking for her. She sees you know, teammates become pregnant and make their decisions. She sees teammates, you know, contract diseases. She sees teammates make decisions that, although other people may never know about them, that, that they will always carry them with them the rest of their life. How much of uh, Jennifer Gabu is in L.A. Lancaster? You know, if I had to identify with one character in the book, I would have to say it, it, she has my bones, but... Her decisions and the things that um, she encounters, I did not encounter uh, my freshman year. So it's definitely uh, very similar to me and my character, but I would hope that she's, uh, people would say she's much better looking. <laughs> it sounds, sounds bad, but this is a fiction, so in fiction I think it can be a little better looking. She, she's not an Angelina Jolie, but she's definitely, um, she's definitely got something going for her. Is there any thoughts for a movie on this, Jennifer? Um, yeah, I'm hoping so. We we shot this spot for it to for promotion, which is 60 seconds, and uh, it's on Vimeo. We've been getting a lot of hits. We're really excited, and it's something I'm open to as the book comes out next Friday and starting to get some interest. So I'm very excited because I believe that uh, there hasn't been a lot written in the last 30 years since Title IX about what it's like to be immersed into this present day opportunity of being a student athlete. Well, you know, we've all heard about a typical day for a 
Division One football basketball player. Tell us what a typical day for a college tennis player is at Division One. I tell you, it's it involves waking up and going to the gym. I mean, sometimes five forty-five and doing your agility and your strength training and your sprints, and then having practice afterwards around six forty-five, seven, and you you're probably practicing for two hours lunch and study hall and nutritionist and you've got your compliance meetings and you have you have all of these different things that you've got to juggle and then come back and practice again um, in the afternoon. Tennis is, tennis is one of those sports where uh, you have to, it's a skill sport, it's a skill set, so you, practice isn't always fun. It's the same skill over and over and over again. And although the NCAA allows for 20 hours a week, if you want to be the best, you're going you're gonna to put in 40 on your own. So I think that it's not unlike other sports, but it's unique in that you are, it's one of those sports where you're head to head and you actually find out who is better daily. You know, I remember Stan Smith as a player. Tell us what it was like to be coached by Stan Smith. He was incredible. I tell you, we went overseas on the American Express All-Star uh, Tour as a, as a college athlete. I was, I had a huge honor to represent the United States with the ITA over there. And my, my most fond memory of Stan was um, sitting at a table, and I, I leaned over to him, and I said, what's it like to, to hear your, your name in a rap song? And he said, you know what I heard? My son told me about that Jazzy. He, <laughs> he called him Jazzy, which was so cute because he was referring to Jay-Z about the Stan Smith to be this shoe. So it was one of the greatest thrills and honors. And actually, when the Olympics um, happened in China a few years later, when I was coaching, he dropped me a line and said, you know, just just thought of you. I'm over here in China, and what a great experience we had. So it was a complete honor. Jennifer Gabu is our guest tonight. She's the author of Division One, the book that is coming out next Friday. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or any other uh, Internet site that, that sells books or even at uh, on uh, Nook sites. Jennifer, there's a lot of talk now about the possibility of paying some NCAA athletes, primarily football and basketball players. If that happens, is that going to take away from the non-revenue producing sports? You know, I don't think so. I think any type of, I mean, I'm for paying student athletes. I know it's a very hot topic issue right now, but, you know, having witnessed and seeing all the, the money that comes into the university, through ticket revenue, through any kind of decision that you make, even pressing a button to watch that show, it's pretty phenomenal how much uh, a school that is successful can make. And so I do, I, do, I do not think that it will be a negative thing at all for the non-revenue sports. If anything, it should be even more in, encouraging for those sports, knowing that, hey, if you pick it up and if you're successful, you never know what's possible for you as a student-athlete. What kind of improvements can be made to Title IX to make it more effective? You know, I, the, the improvement that I would love to see would actually come from the NCAA. As a recruit going into your visits, you get some information about the university. You get the, the APR graduation rates. You get the GPA. Uh, because, you know, they're thinking that families and student athletes want to know what it's, what it's like and what are their chances of graduating and finishing at that school. And the same, I would love for, for schools to release information uh, regarding other statistics that influence graduation, such as disease rates and pregnancy rates and 
you know, rates of um, violence or domestic abuse even on campus. And then I'm talking total campus numbers, just not within the athletic department. And I think that that's a part of the information that you that you may want to know. This is you'd move into a neighborhood, you maybe want to know the crime rate. I think it would be pretty neat for them to give those statistics to young student athletes. Well, you kind of hit upon it earlier, Jennifer. You come from a very athletic family. Your father was an NBA player. Your brother and sister were both scholarship athletes, you especially. What was it like growing up in a family that was primarily athletic? It was a lot of fun. I we always I, I tell you we didn't play board games in my house because too many tables were turned over <laughs> at a young age. So we we stuck to non-competitive things with each other, but it really was amazing. And having a father, my father David Magley, who was uh, Mr. Basketball in Indiana and played at KU, I mean he really taught me so much of what it's like to persevere and to to work hard. And we are firm believers in our house that hard work always pays off. Well, it definitely is paying off with this. Your book comes out next Friday. Jennifer Gabu, thanks for being our guest tonight. Thanks for giving us a few minutes of your time. Dave, thanks so much. Had a great time on Ultimate Sports. Our thanks to Jennifer for being our guest here tonight on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Well, let's switch to the Olympics as our final stories of the night. It's Slovakia was Team USA's first test on the larger ice service of the Sochi Olympics men's hockey tournament. Well, they aced it. Paul Stansney had two goals, and Phil Kessel had three points as the Americans controlled play this morning, chased a goalie, and lit up the scoreboard with a 7-1 domination in their Olympic opener on Thursday. The route began after a Slovakian goal that shouldn't have counted. Slovak forward Thomas Tadar of the Detroit Red Wings erased a 1-0 deficit just 24 seconds into the second period on a play that clearly should have been whistled as offside. But rather than deflating the Americans, it ignited a fire under their offense, which scored two goals in the next one minute, five seconds. On the go-ahead goal, Chicago Blackhawks star Patrick Kane set up Ryan Kessler from the point for a blast as Dustin Brown provided a screen in front of Slovak goalie Jaroslav Halak. The beneficiary of this offensive route was goalie Jonathan Quick, starting his first Olympic game after serving as a backup to Ryan Miller in the 2010 Vancouver Games. His selection as starter over Miller was controversial, but outside of Slovak's lone tally, he was strong in making 22 saves. Now the next up for the United States in hockey is a date with Russia on Saturday in one of the tournament's most anticipated games in the preliminary round. And so far as of today, here's the Olympic medal total. Germany and Canada. Germany leads with seven gold medals, but they have ten all total. Canada has ten. Norway only has four gold medals, but they have 13 all total. Then come the Netherlands and the United States. They each have 12 medals apiece with four gold medals won. And a sad note to end tonight's show, Sid Caesar who's clever, anarchic comedy on such programs as your show of shows and Caesar's Hour helped define the 1950s golden age of television, died today. He was 91 years old. Hey, our thanks once again to our guests on tonight's show. We had two great guests from DetroitSportsPodcast.com, Adam Straczynski talking about Detroit sports, and Jennifer Gabu talking about her book to be released next Friday, Division 1. Our thanks to them.
for being our guest here this evening on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. Of course, that means it's time for us to go. Thanks again for joining us again for another hour of Sports Talk here at UltimateSportsTalk.com. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell, our producer, but most of all, our thanks to you for listening. I'm Dave Mitchell. We'll be back with you again next Thursday night at 7 o'clock as we're going to devote it to baseball. Join us again then. Have a good weekend, everyone, and a good week next week. I'm Dave Mitchell. Until then, good night, everybody.